The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. It's a great pleasure to be here again. Uh, I've, I've been here a couple of times. I remember a day long with Ajahn Amaro that was very, very lively. And Gil uh, is a Dharma brother of mine, uh, as you probably know, also a Zen teacher as well as a Vipassana teacher. I want to share with you what I've learned over the last 10 years in working with uh, many, many returning veterans, their families and children, and also their care providers. What I've learned about trauma and the transformation of trauma, trauma being a subset of suffering, which we examine both uh, uh, through study and through personal experience and through uh, our own practice um, in Buddhism. But uh, trauma really hasn't gotten much treatment in, in Buddhism, per se, because it's, it's not really addressed in Buddhism. It's a uh, subset of suffering and one that causes grievous suffering. I've been teaching, uh, practicing and teaching Buddhism and practicing and teaching psychotherapy for over 40 years. And I don't think I've learned as much uh, as I have over the last 10 years, working with a population that I've come to love. And uh, um, our country has become much better at separating out the warriors from the war. And I had to do this as well, being someone who's not very well inclined toward war as a way of solving our problems. But um, I've found uh, uh, qualities uh, in returning veterans and their families and caregivers which are just remarkable, which is, has endeared them to me. I want to speak particularly about the integrative residential retreats that we've offered, some for veterans and their family members, including children and grandmas and grandpas and partners and spouses, and retreats we've done for veterans themselves, including just for women veterans, and then retreats we've done for care providers. And we've learned that many of the, the uh, modalities that we've used and the model and the, uh, the driving force uh, holds for each of these populations. So you, you may be thinking as I'm speaking about, yeah, well, this could hold for other kinds of cumulative trauma as well. And, and I would agree with that. Let me begin with a, a, a vignette. Uh, Ken and Rory were two veterans, one a Marine and one uh, uh, a soldier, who had returned from Iraq with grievous head injuries. And their um, care providers, one of whom was the mother and one of whom was the wife, had brought them to our first retreat in Berkeley in 2007. And uh, as they were gathering outside the room before we met, uh, their providers were moving them toward one another because they couldn't see very well. One had lost their eye and the other one had lost his vision completely. And so when they got up about two feet away from one another, they began taking the other's hands 
and tracing the tracks of their wounds with the other's hand and narrating uh, what the bullet, the trajectory of the bullet and the shrapnel and what had happened to them. And I was observing this from about 50 paces and I felt my eyes start to water and I said to myself, we brought these people together to reconnect on multiple levels and these two guys are reconnecting in exactly the way that they need to, exactly the way that they can. Now, we wouldn't be very comfortable if someone came up 18 inches away from our face, but that was how they could begin to see each other and to tell their stories through show and tell. One of the things I've learned about war trauma is that it operates like an IED blast, like an improvised explosive device. It's not just the shrapnel in the blast that causes the damage, but it's the shock waves. They're literally radiating sonic waves that travel a great distance. So if you imagine that we are one organism, we human beings are intimately connected, when there's a blast, when there's a war, it affects everybody multidimensionally, instantaneously. We're all affected, whether we know it or not, whether we can deal with it or not, and uh, whether our government in, in encourages us to become aware of war or whether it discourages us by manipulating the media. We're all affected. And uh, so I realized that what war trauma does is it uh, shatters lives and it shatters lives by breaking connectedness at multiple levels. The first level is within the veteran or within the family member or provider. That's to say body and mind, heart and soul. What we usually take to be us, a kind of holistic experience of who we are, that's broken. The other thing that's, that's broken and that's uh, unraveled is relationships within families. The third thing is the relationship between the family and the veteran with their communities. Fourth thing is organizations and institutions. And the fifth thing are foreign policy makers and our leaders. They're all affected by the shock waves of trauma. Um, so the work of healing and transforming is repairing these connections and rebuilding them where they've been devastated so that healing can continue. Because the one thing about trauma is that it not only overwhelms us and disables us, but it also compromises those capacities which we need to transform the trauma. Our capacity for self-reflection, for awareness, for self-compassion. Uh, those very capacities that we need to bring to bear to transform the trauma, those are compromised too. So we find ourselves overwhelmed and unable to process the overwhelm. I don't know if it sounds familiar, but all of us have experienced this to some degree. And we go, oi, whoa. Like being knocked down by a wave a few times. The first time you're all right. The second time a little harder. The third time you start to feel like, where are my resources? 
So our retreats were designed to restore connections at all of these levels. Uh, and we haven't had leaders and foreign policy makers, but we've had everyone up to there. And we've done it using five modalities that, uh, when we stop and think about it, are means that human beings have used to transform trauma since time immemorial. And the first one is um, group settings, particularly small group support settings, characterized by unconditional compassion without any judgment. This is the driving force. This is the, the, the secret sauce that I've come to learn. And we've published our results in a peer-reviewed professional journal. So um, it's not just somebody going out there and saying, hey, we, we had this great experience and that great experience. This, this, this thing actually we demonstrated to, to work, to create what we've called post-traumatic growth, which I'll talk about later, through a process I call turning ghosts into ancestors. So the five modalities are the power of the large group, the power particularly of these small support groups. The second are wellness practices that many of us know, from meditation to qigong to yoga. The third is expressive arts. Sometimes we can't put into words what we've experienced. We're at a loss for words because trauma can hijack the capacity to, again, to express and to represent the very trauma which we need to express and represent. Um, so expressive arts like uh, beading, like arts and crafts, like singing, composing, poetry, dancing. Dancing is a great one. Uh, when we're up and moving, it's very, very transformative. Uh, journaling. The fourth is the power and the beauty of the, wa the wilderness, of nature. So we have these retreats in rural settings. And we've seen time and time again people just ramping down just when they arrive. Very, very powerful. And then we do vigorous exercise in the wild so that they can have the experience in a civilian setting of being part of a team and using their energies getting their energies up in a beautiful setting without the threat of death. So they can re-experience a, a sense of aliveness which is not dependent on the threat of death. Very important. Uh, the fifth activity uh, we had is secular ritual. A variety of rituals that we used to help people connect and to recognize each other. If we have time, I'll tell you a story in which we did a ritual where children were able to share their experience with adults and adults were able to hear it and give feedback to the kids because kids in all settings are the last ones listened to. The women and kids. And in this case we started with the kids and then the kids got a chance to hear the adults in the retreat talk about their experience and the adults got to hear kids feedback to that. So that was one ritual we developed that was incredibly moving. So these five elements have been used since time immemorial. When, when we look at the small groups or the large groups uh, and the, the sharing that happens within them, people have been joining for dialogue since, since when? Long time. 
wellness practices, spiritual practices have been around a couple few thousand, five thousand years. Expressive arts since the caveman times. And being in nature, I mean, there are accounts of people finding solace and transformation in nature, again, thousands and thousands of years. And secular ritual, religious practice in a secular version. So I, I felt very good as, as we developed this protocol that we weren't kind of fetishizing the method. We were bring to get, bringing together methods that are native to human beings. We're just sort of mobilizing them and creating a healing environment in which they were all part of the process of transformation. I remember somebody once asked me, well, Joe, we hear about your retreats and they're going well because my friend was a facilitator. And Well, how does it work? Do you do mindfulness? And I said, yeah, the whole community is mindfulness. Do you do metta? I said, yeah, the whole community is metta. We're, we're living metta, we're breathing metta. We're bringing together all of that from the first contact, from the first time they call us up. And so at the end of retreats, we started hearing the same feedback in the closing circle. And people would say, you don't judge us. It's just, it's just warm. It's just, we have a place here. We feel like we belong. And you're civilians. Many of the logistics team were civilians. The facilitators were a combination of civilians and veterans. Uh, it's unbelievable. Well, nobody likes to get judged. Right? And I mean, it's, it's a wonderful thing not to feel judged, particularly when you've done things you have a lot of regrets about, or you haven't done things that you have some regrets about. You have injuries that are now being called moral injuries, a sense of carrying a tremendous burden. And veterans and their families have carried a disproportionate load of the burden of these wars. They're only 1% of the population. And they're 99% of the population. Usually in war, when you look at World War II, for example, uh, everyone was involved in the war effort. Uh, whereas now, you know, we're encouraged to go shopping and to support our efforts through going to the mall. So there's an extra burden on, on veterans and their families carrying not only the dysregulation problems of PTSD, which we know very well, but the moral load of... Of, of this war. And I'll tell you more about that as I talk about turning ghosts into ancestors. I realized after a while that we were training and cultivating four very basic human qualities. I didn't really know this going in, but I realized that these four qualities are pretty good. And one I already shared with you is aliveness, a sense of capacity for exhilaration, thriving, even though Kaiser stole that word thrive. It's kind of a nice word, you know, thriving. Not just surviving. I mean, sometimes it's, it's good just to survive. I'm very happy just to be surviving. But, you know, can we thrive? Can we feel exhilaration and aliveness? This one Marine was on a kayaking trip that we sponsored, uh, and uh, he won an impromptu race with his wife, and when he got to the other shore, he got out of the kayak and he said, Joe, I feel so high. And I said, yeah, that's a good high. And he looked at me a little askance. What do you mean a good high? Is there a good high and a bad high? 
Uh, he, he'd known the other kind of high, and uh, so had his family members. And uh, so I realized in that moment, wow, that's a great capacity that, that everybody you know, should be able to feel high uh, naturally. And unfortunately, the vets were, f were trying to recapture some of the adrenaline rush of being in a war zone by doing high-risk activities and getting themselves hurt or killed. Uh, so the second element is uh, bonding, the capacity for bonding. Under the threat of death, veterans bond with their buddies. And those bonds last a lifetime. And when they come home, they look at their family members and family members look at them and sometimes it's, who is this person? What have you done with my husband or my wife? Or who are you? I knew you. Who's this little kid? who's now big, who's not accepting my uh, orders. Uh, so recreating bonds within the family and with new friends who were not in your unit to, so, so that when you're in a small group of fellow veterans, you don't have to explain yourself. You're making those kinds of life-giving connections. The third element is regulation. It's called resilience, uh, but that word I don't use too much because it's been co-opted by the VA and the Department of Defense and it's been saturated. As if, you know, you just develop your resilience and, and trauma is just gonna be like water off a duck's back. You know, and so that's a kind of cheapening of what, of what resilience really, really means. So I call it regulation, the capacity to regulate affect, to regulate emotions. When the big waves come, to recognize, oh, big wave coming, and to learn how to, how to flow with that, not react too much to that, and allow it to pass, get to know it, and, and find our rhythm again this capacity for uh, affective emotional regulation may be one of the key psychoneurological faculties we have and it's one of them that goes offline uh, over the course of cumulative trauma. Uh, the fourth element is the sense of meaning and purpose. Uh, that can get compromised in war. That can be shattered when you go over there and you had these patriotic ideals which many of these guys and women had and you realize this is a hellhole. And within a short period of time, what, what they all tell us, they, they think, is that I, my main goals are two. One is to get home alive and the second is to get the lady or the guy to the left of me and the lady or the guy to the right of me home alive. And that's, that's basically it. And, and you know, what happened to those ideals, those philosophical uh, meanings and values, or those religious ideals? Sometimes those crumble. Sometimes your whole assumptive world, everything you assume you take for granted, be it religious or philosophical, stated or unstated, just falls apart. You come home. And there's one guy who's just shaking his fist at God and not going to church anymore. He said, you know, what did I do wrong? I was just a mechanic. I didn't kill anybody had a sort of a very simple view of religion. And the last thing that these guys and women need is for someone to come to them and try to sell them a new religion. Unfortunately, that gets done a lot within the military. Uh, you know, just if, if you believe more, then you'll suffer less. If you have been of greater faith, you would have 
you know, your family would have suffered. I mean, just really awful kinds of things. So, so the opportunity to reconstruct a sense of meaning, to find a sense of purpose again, very, very important. And our retreats, you know, allow five days for that to begin to happen in a safe setting. Let me say something about this incredible quality of safety. Very, very important quality of safety. Taken for granted, used glibly, but safety is the heart's way of opening. It only opens in a safe setting where we're unafraid of being harmed emotionally, physically, uh, spiritually, in which we can lay down our protective mechanisms. And uh, these soldiers, sailors, airmen, and marines, they can't find a safety zone when they come home. There is no safety zone. And so when we provide a safe setting, it's just incredible. And that's another thing people ask us, you know, well, what's the X factor? And I say safety and unconditional compassion without judgment. And they say, well, that's not EMDR, and that's not prolonged exposure, and that's not acupuncture, and that's not massage, and that's not... But, you know, there's like supposed to be a quick fix to it. You know, you get, you get an acupressure massage and all the traumas, now you just learn how to do zazen, and, you know, you do a little EMDR. It just doesn't work that way, particularly for the more complex, the more cumulative kinds of trauma. It takes a village, and we've learned how to create that kind of village. Um, quick vignette, and then I'm going to go through turning ghosts into ancestors. The process we learn unfolds to transform trauma, not eliminate it, but transform it from a ghost that haunts and blots out the present to an ancestor, a memory, that allows us to have a past, present, and future. Let me just give you an example to make this real. So in our very first circle, 2007, at First Congregational Church in Berkeley, this beautiful church. We gathered for a weekend. We're about 40 people from around the country. And I said, let's take a few moments of silence to remember those people who couldn't be here. So about 10 minutes into the silence, one toddler, Ben, says to another toddler, these are two to three-year-olds, Isaiah was his friend, my daddy died in Iraq. So these are the first words spoken at a coming home retreat. And I'm thinking to myself, just create the atmosphere. Just create this feeling of safety and silence. And out it comes. Actually, didn't have to do anything. Out of the mouth of babes. When we went around after the moment of silence to introduce ourselves, we learned that, in fact, Ben's dad, Michael, had come home. He hadn't died in Iraq, but he'd taken his life after he'd been home six months. So something in him had died that couldn't be revived back home. And uh, his, his mom, Stephanie, had come because she had been uh, sort of ostracized from her church somewhere in the Midwest where suicide was a, was a sin. So she was looking for a kind of fellowship, not necessarily Buddhism, but a fellowship where she would be accepted, where she wouldn't be judged. And so all of the fellow spouses took her in and supported her, and it was just amazing to see. So what is this turning ghosts into ancestors? Uh, what's the process? 
Well, when we experience overwhelming trauma, the trauma has to go somewhere. So it sort of goes into the background, it goes into the deep memory storage, it goes into our cells and our, uh, you know, it goes, uh, it becomes sequestered away because particularly in war, we have to keep on keeping on. We don't have time to open and process trauma. And um, so it becomes a, a ghost, ghostly kind of presence. And when we feel safe enough, it starts to haunt us. And the haunting is a terrible symptom and it completely hijacks our lives. But one of the things I've learned about post-traumatic stress is that it's waiting for the right setting in which to reveal itself so it can be transformed. So there are some studies and some research that goes on to try to take away traumatic memories. Imagine, so, so that you would never have a traumatic memory again. Uh, well, that might work in terms of being able to sleep or some symptoms like that, but post-traumatic stress is waiting for the safe, compassionate setting in which to go through this process of transformation so that it becomes something we can learn from rather than something that haunts us. Let me tell you what the haunting looks like, uh, a moral injury that comes back and haunts before it can get transformed. We had this one guy, uh, Bob Rodriguez, who was a CB, a, a Navy builder who built the bases, and uh, he was on watch one day when he saw an Iraqi boy through the sights of his rifle. And so, um, since he's been home, uh, for five years he hasn't slept through the night. He wakes up every single night in a cold sweat with this particular night visitation. It's not really a dream. It's not even a nightmare because it's not fully processed. You know, a dream, a dream is a wonderful thing. It allows us to integrate a lot of different elements. And even a nightmare is all right because it shows us the parts that, that we're afraid of. But these are more like f being flooded by a, a revisited by some ghostly experience. But if we look at it from the other point of view, it's an opportunity to start processing this trauma, this ghost. So he would wake, he would be visited by the experience of seeing this Iraqi boy through the sights of the rifle being about to press the trigger and kill him because he was trying to get in the wire of the base and jeopardize his, his guys. And right as he was about to pull the trigger, he'd see the, through the sights of the rifle his own two twin boys. And he'd stop. And he'd stop breathing. And in that moment, he'd say, I'm going to kill my own boy. And then he got afraid that if he didn't pull the trigger, he'd be jeopardizing his men. And then he started to pull the trigger again. And then he'd see the, his own boys again. And back and forth in a Sophie's Choice kind of... Um, oscillating terror that you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't and he woke up in a cold sweat. This is keeping him from sleeping for five years. So that's what happens when you have an unprocessable experience uh, and you, you're not able to tell anybody about it. That's a ghost. There's no present, there's no past, there's no future. You're just flooded by these kinds of visitations that un you, you think they're in the present. They are in the present, but actually they're versions of the past that you, you haven't yet transformed.
So here's the process that we learned. I want to allow some time for questions and I'll also be around uh, afterward for 10 or 15 minutes if anybody wants to talk to me about, uh, about what, uh, what I'm sharing. Um, the first step in transforming, not eliminating, but transforming a ghost into an ancestor is regulation. Remember I told you when, you when people would get to a beautiful setting, they'd already start to ramp down. Their level of arousal would start to quiet. People would say things like, what did you put in the water here? What's going on here? I'm f- I said, well, what's the problem? I don't know. I feel kind of weird. Well, kind of weird how? Kind of relaxed. Kind of. People are very defended. So nature and the group itself starts to regulate one another. Did you know that right brains and right brains communicate directly? If you don't know the work of Alan Shore, it's very wonderful. And Dan Siegel talks about this as well. We help each other regulate our emotion just by listening to one another, just by our facial expressions as we follow one another. That starts to settle us down, especially when it's fellow veterans or fellow spouses or other kids and you're starting to feel safe together. So you're starting already to recover your capacity for that third element. We talked about regulation. You're starting to repair that compromised capacity. That's a good thing. The second thing is in the large groups but more often in the small groups. Sometimes in the middle of the night with a buddy you're talking with over coffee but let's just take the small groups. Someone starts to talk about their story or their experience and you say to yourself, oh my goodness, that's me. So you recognize yourself and you start to feel less crazy. A lot of these guys and women come in feeling completely nuts. And imagine you're feeling at sixes and sevens and then on top of that you're feeling nuts like nobody gets you like you're really a wacko and then you, you realize that everybody in that room is going through some variety of the same thing you recognize so the regulation recognition the third thing is taking a risk so you start to say hmm this other person began to talk they didn't get interrupted no one tried to jump in to fix them to tell them what they needed to do to give them some advice. People just listened. They bore witness in a whole-bodied kind of unconditional listening, really all there. And wow, maybe, maybe the water's deep. Maybe I'll put my foot a little bit in and see how deep this water is. And so they take a risk and they represent their own experience. That's the next R word. This seems to be all R words for some reason. Trauma needs to be represented. It can't just sit there and eat away at your guts. Again, it can be through a poem. It can be through a sound. It can be through a song. It can be through telling your story, through beginning to recapture the capacity for narrative. What we can't narrate is going to haunt us. What we can't make into a story, tell tell about, is going to haunt us. So we start to represent the trauma as Bob Rodriguez started It's easy for him to talk about how angry he was or how reactive he was. And I helped him and others through meditation and other practices deal with the the dysregulation symptoms of PTSD. But the other symptoms of PTSD, the, the moral questions, are much harder to get to. But he finally started to talk about this. And as he did, you can't just represent trauma without re experiencing it to some degree. 
but in a new setting. And as you re-experience it, it gets emotional. So it could be sadness, it could be anger, it could be your whole heart cracking open, it could just be sobbing, could be just little tremors of feeling. Whatever it is, you start to re-experience something. And, and with that re-experience comes a fear. Comes a fear that you're going to be slammed. You're going to be judged. You're going to be killed. I mean, to really open your heart for a soldier, there's a fear. I could be killed. I mean, literally, if I let down my guard, that's something you can't do in the war zone, let down your guard. So the, you know, or I, I could be shamed. I could be hated. And in the thick of the experience, the re-experiencing, people look around and what do they see? They see kindness. They see unconditional <gasps> compassion. Not in a sentimental way, but people really being there with them. No matter what things they've talked about that they feel terrible about. Bob eventually did kill this Iraqi boy. He felt terrible. And something happens when we look around and our fears are disconfirmed. In that moment, I've seen it again and again. It's like, it's impossible for you to be kind to me or loving me when I feel so rotten about this that I did or that I didn't do that compromise my own moral compass. Something starts to open. Sometimes it cracks open. And there's a recontextualizing of something that has been haunting you as a ghost that you've had to keep in the background to now it's part and parcel of you. It's an ancestor. It's a memory. It's a bad memory. It has a new context. And you've become the author of these awful things that have happened to you. This whole process is a way in a way of reauthoring the trauma so that it's your trauma, not something that happened to you, that fractured you, that you have to keep to one side. And so we have a past and we have a present and we have a future. That's a wonderful thing, especially the present. The present is hijacked in cumulative trauma. And one of the gifts that turning ghosts into ancestors gives you back is gives you back your life, gives you back the capacity to enjoy the present moment. Isn't that a wonderful thing? So you can look at your, uh, at your love, at your wife or husband or partner. You can look at your mom or your grandma or your children and you can see their smile. You can smell the roses. You can feel the breeze. You can experience the tender mercies of the present moment and you can make plans for the future. This is post-traumatic growth. It's not a cheap thing where you do a little meditation and you become like a Teflon Don. Nothing's going to get to you. It's not like that. There's this process. The driving force of this process is the Sangha. That's what I learned. It's an amazing thing. People coming together, bringing to bear all of their attentiveness, their mindfulness, all of their love, their compassion, suspending all of their political beliefs, their judgments, completely connecting with these folks. And that creates the setting for people to rebuild their capacities, to go through this healing process, and to really learn from suffering, to really transform their suffering. So thank you so much. 
and I'd be glad to have questions or comments. I want to be sure to stop on time. I've been, that's been impressed upon me. <laughs> no, by Gil. Gil's the time Nazi. No. <laughs> no, he only said, you know, you can go on, but people will start to leave at 10.45. <laughs> They've been trained, so, okay. Please. So, um, I do very similar work to your work. Uh -huh. I work with cops, and oh. we do uh, six-day retreats, oh. uh, the West Coast post-trauma retreat. Uh -huh. um, and there's a couple of uh, things I wanted to ask you about that we see very uh, uh, frequently. Mm -hmm. One is a sense of betrayal yeah. that makes that, all that trauma stuff worse. Right. And, and there are great differences between military and police officers. Sure. That's a career, something you do for our 20, 30 oh, years. Right. So it's different than the short, shorter term stuff that the combat vets have. The other thing that we see is that there is some, for many people, what puts them at risk for post-traumatic stress disorder is a very early childhood injury in which they experienced helplessness uh, or abuse. Right. We had a room full of six guys who had all looked at each other and realized they'd all been sexually abused as children. So can I, let me comment on both of those. Uh, the, the first one is that a sense of betrayal is one possible element of this moral injury. That's to say, it happens um, when a service member, say, is part of a unit and the commanding officer makes decisions that are in his best interest, but do not take care of uh, the unit's best interest, and someone will lose people because of those decisions. And there's a fury, a sense of betrayal, that the leaders were thinking of themselves while I was sacrificing myself. And this can also be true for uh, the leaders who made the decision to get us into war. Uh, Rory, one of the people I was speaking about before, became almost uncontrollably angry at George Bush after he lost three guys and his own head was blown up. And it took him about a year or two to learn to regulate his anger so that it served him rather than disabled him. Um, but, uh, but that sense of betrayal can be, I've heard people talk about, can be just as powerful as a bayonet going into your stomach. In fact, many people would prefer the physical injury to that kind of... Here are people who are supposed to be looking out for us while, while we're looking out for our country, and they, they don't. They let us down. The, the second element is very interesting. Um, I've seen that happen quite a bit. That's to say that people uh, who uh, have a, a, a long-lasting, serious case of post-traumatic stress often have earlier... Uh, traumas, but um, politically it's easy, uh, like through the Department of Defense, they prefer to uh, ascribe what happens to many of the soldiers and sailors as uh, evidence of a pre-existing disorder, like a personality disorder, and as if there's something wrong with you. Maybe something happened in the past. Maybe you've developed a way of coping and now you have a personality disorder. It's not war stress. So whenever I listen to vets, I always take them seriously. And in the retreats, we very rarely hear about early trauma. We're focused almost exclusively on war trauma. 
and we give full credence to that, full exposure to that. Now, if you're in a longer-term group or you're in a longer-term therapy or support setting, yes, it eventually will come out that when you start dealing with the war trauma, it, it's linking to other traumas. But there are people who've gone through early trauma and it didn't predispose them to developing long-term problems. So I would say that often that's the case, but not always. And the important thing is to listen to people where they're at, and you're not doing this, but, but there are people who will want to, politically and other ways, reduce it to early trauma, and it cannot, because war is so devastating it has to be given its due. But I, li I like to learn more about those retreats. Yeah? One more question. I'm, I'm glad to, to take other questions. Yeah, please, go ahead. Uh, I'm interested in uh, uh, what, you, what you started with when you talked about the what shock waves that mm. reach out into society uh, right. be, beyond the war. So, yeah. so we've seen for some time how wars have been isolated and the warriors are isolated and a very small population does takes care of all of that. And I'm... I'm asking you to speculate here, but I wonder, well, you mentioned symptoms. A, what are those, some of those symptoms? And B, could some of what the world looks like now, the craziness, the trauma, be in some way affected by uh, what you were describing, the shock waves that filter out? Well, you, you, you might be interested in my book, Waking Up From War, uh, you know, A Better Way Home for nations, uh, Veterans and Nations, in which I take up this very thing. So my theory, just to, just to quickly summarize it, is that uh, unless at multiple levels, not just the individual veteran, not just the family, not just even the organization or the institutions of care, but at the highest levels, the policymakers and the deciders, unless they become aware of the shockwaves of trauma, they're going to make bonehead cowboy decisions that's going to create more trauma. That's exactly how it happens. So uh, I, in the book, encourage at every level, people to wake up from war to transform their ghosts into ancestors so that they can use restraint, discernment, balance, attentiveness to deal with the inevitable attacks and traumas, 9-11 or whatever happens, so that we don't create needless surplus value, so to speak, of more trauma. So it's, it's, it's all connected, and I bring it all together in my book. So you might be interested in it. Thank you all so much.